Let's pray together. Merciful Father, you are so good. We thank you this morning as we're singing praises to your great name, the reminder of the, the great truths that we, we are prone to wander. But you are the God who has come to seek and save the lost. Your son, Christ Jesus, came, brought redemption for all who would put their trust in his name. We thank you, God, that your word is so clear about your working in creation and in salvation and, and in all things. You reign supreme. And this morning, as we open your word together, I pray that we would see that you reign supreme in our lives today, including in our trials, in our difficulties, and in everything we can say, the Lord is with me. The Lord has not forsaken me, but the Lord has been gracious and merciful to me. His anger is but for a moment, but His salvation is for a lifetime. And Lord, be with me this morning as we, as we seek to, to draw from Your Word truth about who You are and how who You are shapes and defines how we see reality and how we see the world. And most importantly, how we properly understand You, fellowship with You, and worship You as our great God. If anyone's here this morning that has never put their trust in the work of Christ, I pray that you would open their eyes this morning to see the parallels between the Old Testament book of Jonah and what Christ has done. And that they would, their eyes would be open, as we saw this morning in Sunday school, that, that their call would be effectual, that they would see and they would hear the beauty, the foolishness of the cross, that is ultimately the beauty of Christ, and the power of the message of what He has done there for all of us who have put trust in Him. Uh, you are faithful to, to hear our prayers. You are faithful to move. And we, we thank you for that truth now. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to continue uh, a look at the book of Jonah. The last time I was with you, we had looked at chapter 1. Today we are going to pick it up at the end of chapter 1 and look at chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of Jonah. It's in the sticky pages of your Old Testament. He is a minor prophet. But if you keep going, if you get Obadiah, you're right about there. If you've hit Micah, you've gone too far. This morning, let us begin with, um, we will begin in verse 17 of chapter 1. But let me begin by reminding you what we've already seen at the beginning of the first 16 chapters of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet who was on the run. He was given a big task, going to an enemy nation to preach repentance. Which is not an easy task, to be sure. And also not a common one. Not definitely common to God's prophets. They usually had the home field advantage, but Jonah was commanded to take his message on the road and go to Nineveh, which was a major Assyrian city. What makes this all the more interesting is that Jonah was a prophet in the northern nation of Israel. We know that from 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 27, he shows up. There, But we also know that the rest of the Old Testament tells us that Assyria would be the nation or will be the nation that will end up overtaking Israel and exiling them before Judah is then exiled by Babylon later. While we don't know that Jonah was aware of this fact, he did know that they were hostile to Israel and they were not Jewish. So instead of doing what he was commanded, going to this non-Jewish nation to speak the word of the Lord, he took a boat to Tarshish, which is literally the opposite direction. 
From there, the story really picks up steam and a great wind assails the ship. It's a wind that it says in verse 4 of chapter 1 that God hurled on the water. And the mariners or the boatmen started losing their minds. And as Jonah was catching a nap below deck, they drag him up front and they say, Hey, in verse 6, pray to your God. Instead of praying, the crew cast lots in verse 7 to find out who brought this raging wind and the lots fall on Jonah. Jonah confesses that he is a prophet of the Lamb, and he says of, of the Lord and the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. That says verse 9 of chapter 1. And, and this God was the one who was causing the storm. And so the men basically freak out. They try to row out of it, which, surprise, surprise, doesn't work. And they finally take Jonah's advice from verse 12 of chapter 1, and they hurl him, as, the, as God hurled the wind on the sea, the mariners hurl him into that same sea. Now, the unintended byproduct of chapter 1 that no one saw coming was that these uh, mariner merchants who were pagan, we see that in verse 5 of chapter 1, they all prayed to each of their own gods, they became converts to the Lord Yahweh. The chapter concludes in verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. It's like God is using Jonah's life in spite of himself which continues to be the theme in chapter 4 as well, which we'll get to someday. But we see that in the final verse of chapter 1, verse 17, says this, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, we meet what most... uh, Bible readers, or maybe most people that don't put a lot of thought into the book of Jonah, we meet who is what we think a major player in the story of Jonah, the great fish. But I want to say a few things quickly about this fish before we get to Jonah's prayer, which is what chapter 2 is really all about. First, the fish is not as big of a theme in the book as you might think. It is only mentioned in two verses in the whole book. This one that we just read in verse 10 of chapter 2, which is the end of chapter 2. It basically only acts as bookends and a backdrop to the real miracle happening in chapter 2, which is Jonah's changed heart. Don't miss this today. It's amazing that a fish swallowed up Jonah and that he was sustained in that fish for three days and nights. What God did in the heart of Jonah is the main theme of chapter 2. Second, the fish did actually swallow Jonah. Hopefully you already believe that because the book says it, but there are many in our modern times that see this fact as too fantastical to be real. How could a fish be big enough to do this? And how could Jonah survive it? We don't know all of that because, as I said, to God and the story of Jonah, it's not that important. God used the fish to save Jonah from the sea, and it was in the belly of that fish that God went to work on Jonah and produced what we will see in chapter 2. It does say that God appointed a great fish, and that's what God did because he can. If he wants to keep a man alive in a fish, he can. Finally, we also believe this is true because Jesus affirms it as being historically true. You can turn with me if you would like, but I'll read you quickly from Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, where Jesus references Jonah, and he says this in chapter 12, verse 40 and 41. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So not only did Jesus see the story of Jonah as historically true, he was unashamedly pro-Jonah in the fish, he also drew deeper meaning from the three nights in the belly with his three nights in the tomb. We will think more about these parallels later, but for now we are affirming with Jesus and with God himself that the fish was real, it was big, and it happened because God ordained it to be. Sinclair Ferguson in his commentary on this section said this, the most important The most important thing is, of course, that too much discussion about the great fish turns into a red herring. The narrative is not really about the fish at all. It only has a walk-on part in this gripping drama. As Campbell Morgan rightly put it, men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. With all this being said, we are now caught up in the narrative. The scene has been set. We are now in the belly of the great fish. Now let us look at what it produced in Jonah. Let me read to you um, Jonah chapter 2, as I lost my bookmark, so I'm finding it on the fly. Jonah chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says this, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord. My God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and had vomited Jonah out onto the dry land. So first we see in Verse 1 of chapter 2, Jonah's prayer. This is the first time in the book we see this. Jonah was commanded by the captain of the ship in chapter 1, verse 6. He said, wake up, get out of bed, go cry out to your God. But there's no indication that he did so. He continued his run from the Lord all the way until he landed in the sea. But now things have changed. A great and probably scary thing has happened. He has been rescued from the sea, but now he's inside a fish. What we see is that Jonah prays, and it says in verse 1 that he prays to the Lord his God. Notice this phrase here. Jonah is the prophet who is finally thinking properly about his God. He is calling out to him in a moment of great distress. We don't know for sure when the change took place or when it began. Was it in the boat? Was it in the storm? Was it in the sea? Was it in the belly? God's work on Jonah had to have begun during those times, but it was crystallized as he is being sloshed around inside a fish. He finally cries out to God. Enough is enough for Jonah. He has to stop running. He cannot run any further. In fact, he can't run anywhere. Now, he's stuck, literally. But we can tell from how Jonah is written that Jonah was getting to this point. He was stuck because God did it. 
Jonah said in verse 4 of chapter 1 that God was the one who hurled the great wind. And in verse 17, it was God who appointed the great fish. It was clear to Jonah that God was orchestrating all of this. When Jonah turned finally to pray to God, he knew this, but he was still distressed. This is how his prayer begins in verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. I think we can all agree that Jonah has a valid case to be distressed, being inside another animal. The claustrophobia alone would be enough to do me in. But needless to say, Jonah was distressed. And it's more than just external circumstances that are distressing. The external is distressing, no doubt. He has experienced an intense storm. And he was in the sea, drowning, which we will see in a few verses. And he was then swallowed up. But these externals are only spotlighting what's going on inside of Jonah's heart. God's primary concern was not Jonah's geography. Yes, he was going in the opposite direction of Nineveh. But the primary reason for this was not because Jonah was lost on a map. He was lost in relationship to God. He had lost his way. This prophet who so boldly proclaimed truth in Israel had a change of heart about his God, and he ran from his presence. We see that a couple times in chapter 1, that he was running from this idea of God's presence, as if that was something he could do. Now he just got a taste of that wish. Just a taste. As he lies in utter darkness inside the belly of a fish, he gets just a little idea of what it would mean to be outside of the presence of God, and it wakes him up. And out of that distress and that distressful cry, we see that in verse 2, God answered him. We see that Jonah is giving us an overview of his prayer first. He tells us that he cried out in distress, and it was out of the belly of Sheol that he cried. The belly of Sheol is a poetic way of describing the belly and or his time in sea, this idea of death engulfing him. Jonah is recounting for us the fact that he prayed from the fish, God heard him, and God answered him. Now let's stop just for a moment and marvel at that overview. We will look at what he said in a moment, but don't lose fact of the fact that God answered Jonah. What right did Jonah have to ask God for anything? Too often we fall into the trap of thinking that if we have to earn God's favor to have our prayers answered. If I just got my act together, then God would answer me. But never before, we might say. Well, we might not say it out loud, but we think it and we definitely live our lives that way. We live our prayer lives that way. So remember this. God is not holding out on you. He is not waiting for you to get it all just right, and then he will start answering your prayers. Are you in distress today? Are you in the distress because of direct actions that you have taken to get you there? Good news. You're in the same situation as Jonah. It's not that often that I would tell you to be like Jonah, but in this way I would. No matter what your situation is or how you got there, cry out to God in your distress, and he will be pleased to answer you. Next, we see the content of this prayer, and there's so much going on here. Jonah is a prophet, and he would have been well-versed in the Psalms and all of God's writings that were available, and it would seem that he is writing in a loose, psalm-like form. But he was also a prophet. So part of his message is Jonah proclaiming what he has said, and we see it's in a, in a, in a poetic form. It's just so rich. And so as we look at the content of his prayer, we will see a proclamation psalm to both instruct and encourage us as well as Jonah is recounting what God has done in his own life. It begins in verse 3 by saying, For you cast me in the deep. 
Again, Jonah sees now with clear eyes reality as it actually is. He understands how he got to where he was. Physically, it was the mariners that threw him into the sea. But ultimately, he knows that it was God. There is no doubt to Jonah how, why, and who orchestrated this chain of events. Next, he taps into Hebrew poetry like the Psalms to paint for us a very vivid picture of what the sea was like. And just like poetry, he retells it to make it that much more vivid. So look with me first at verse 3, the first half of verse 3 in chapter 2. It says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. He repeats it again in verse 5 where he says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the, at the root of the mountains. See the two accounts and imagine what he's saying here. See the imagery. Think about being in the heart of the sea. No land in sight. You're right in the middle of it. No salvation. No anything. You've just got waves and water all the way around. He's saying I'm at the heart the middle of it, with no land in sight. The waters are closing in over him and trying to take his life, it says in verse 5. It's like the flood was overtaking him. The waves are pouring over his head, surrounding him, driving him deeper and deeper underwater. Now it feels like the flood, or some would translate that word even the current, is pushing him down. And now it's keeping him down, like weeds wrapped around his head at the root of a mountain. So think of, of, of weeds or, or strong, um, we would maybe call it some sort of water weed, weed, I don't know. Seaweed, there you go, that's a good enough word for it. Grabbing him, and it's like they're, they're taking him, and it's like it's dragging him down. It's pulling him down, thick weeds holding onto him, pulling him under. So the sea and everything, it just seems like everything is just amassing on the head of Jonah. And two, uh, verse 6 of chapter 2 begins with the, the The picture of death where he says, I went down to the land whose bars close upon me forever. What a word picture of Sheol. What a word picture for death. The place of the dead. The place by which there is no return. You cannot escape the prison of Sheol. The bars close you in and keep you. And in Jonah's mind, this is where he was going. And there was no other way around it. But what was his final fleeting thought? What did he think as he was going down, as the, as the, the lights were coming, coming dim and becoming unclear? He says in verse 4, right in the middle, right in between those two accounts of the water, he says in verse 4, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Jonah is using more imagery here. He's playing off the distinction between being seen by God and being driven away from God by the sea. But hope comes in and says, no, I will see you again, Lord, and I will worship you in your holy temple. I will be in your presence again. The prophet who was on the run now wants to come home. Repentance, return, the coming back of the prodigal son is how we would say it in the New Testament. The word of God is coming to pass in Jonah's heart. The prophet who needed heart revival received it. And it couldn't have come a moment sooner. As he was on death's doorstep, as the waves were crashing over him and taking him under, literally killing him, taking him to the end of his life, God flips the switch in Jonah's heart 
and enlivens his eyes to see the beauty of God's temple. It's an Old, way, Old Testament way of saying, getting at God's glory. He sees God. He draws near. He's broken down. And while it feels the bleakest, and while Jonah is at the lowest point in every respect, spiritually, physically, in every way, we see that God acts. And in verse 6 of chapter C, we see, chapter 6, in, cha- in verse 6 of chapter 2, we see the lowest point. But the next half of that verse, we see that God intervenes. That hope that's bubbling up in Jonah's heart from verse 4 is now giving him some spiritual buoyancy. It is now when God acts and answers Jonah cry, Jonah's cry from the belly of the fish. So beginning in the second half of verse 6, we see the word, Yet, yet you brought me up from the pit, O Lord my God. This is now what God has, this is Jonah reveals to us in his prayer, or reveals to us what his prayer to God sounded like. God reached down and brings Jonah up from the pit of death when he is at his end. And now we see that not only did God save his physical life, he has saved Jonah's spiritual life. Hear the cry of deliverance from the running prophet. He says, oh Lord, oh Yahweh, my God. He said, yet you brought me up from from the, the pit. Oh Lord, my God. You did what only you can do. Your righteousness right hand, your righteous right hand has moved and brought me all the way back. You see, it was not just physical salvation. While it does include that, Jonah is overwhelmed by the goodness of God. He truly is steadfast in his love, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Think of Psalm 103.8. Jonah recounts it again for poetic effect in verse 7. He says, When my life was fainting away. As we saw in verses 3 and 5, he was going down. He was going under. He saw that the end was near and his life was giving out. But then what does he do in in verse 7? I remembered the Lord, Jonah said. That's how our faith works, doesn't it? When everything gets stripped away, when the trials are their hardest, when we have nowhere else to turn, God graciously flips that switch of faith in our hearts and we remember We're a forgetful people. Isaiah 53 says that. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. We just sang that as well in Come Thou Fount. We're prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. We run. We step off the path. And willingly, I might add. And that's where Jonah was. He willingly left the presence of God, or so he thought. And he pursued what he wanted. His actions spoke volumes about where his heart was. And no matter what his title was, he wasn't acting as a prophet should. Now he finds himself fainting away and God mercifully acts on his behalf. Jonah didn't get his life just right and God then finished the job. No, God acted first and decisively in Jonah's life to change it. God started with external circumstances, then moved inward to the heart. God brought Jonah masterfully to the end of his rope and then to the end of a gangplank and into the deep and dangerous ocean with nowhere to physically go. He remembered the Lord, and he saw how God acted. And now he recounts it for our benefit. The prophet is finally giving us a word from the Lord about his life. By his terrible example, we see the glorious, sweet truth that God intervenes in the life of his children. Now we see as he continues to recount the events that he prayed to God in his holy temple. He came to the throne room of grace, as Hebrew 4 might say, and he brought 
this petition to the Lord. He says, save me, bring me out of the pit. I have no leg to stand on, but only your grace. And neither do we, brothers and sisters. Jonah's prayer is our prayer too. As you can tell from the way this poem is written, the repetition tells the story. Jonah says, your holy temple in verse 7. It echoes verse 4. He is blending a retelling of, of why he said what he said with the content of what he said. So the prayer of, of 2.7 was 2.4. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Jonah finally calls out and God graciously answers, not on the merit of Jonah's life or even the content of his prayer, but because of his love alone. Again, the, it was not the content of his prayer or the merit of his life but God's character and God's love alone that caused this salvation to happen. And that love is a steadfast love. As it says in verse 8 of chapter 2, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah is now rejoicing in God's answered prayer. He is reminded that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Love, let's define some terms here. Vain means empty, worthless, having no substance, value, or importance. So those who pay regard to empty, worthless, substanceless, valueless, lacking of importance, idols. If you're paying regard to that kind of idol, you're forsaking the hope of steadfast love. Steadfast meaning resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering. The love of God is unwavering, which is a big deal to a prophet like Jonah, who is wavering. And fortunately, God's love does not waver in the same way Jonah was wavering. But it is steadfast, resolute. If you put your trust in anything other than the steadfast love of God, you are forsaking your hope. You have no hope. You're giving it away. Don't give away the only real hope in this world. I beg of you, don't do it. There's so many idols we can pursue in this life when trials come. Think about it. What do you do to numb yourself when a trial comes? Is it food, drink, entertainment? What is it? Jonah realized that the only true hope we have is to press into God and his steadfast, immovable love. So don't run from God or the trial, but go through the trial and straight to God himself. Quote from uh, Dr. Robinson says this: "What can you learn from this lo- What can you learn from this locale of Jonah's prayer? You can learn that even from the point of chastening or discipline, you may pray to the Lord. When you are in the deepest depths, you may still call to Him. So call out, be changed. This is what we see with Jonah. The answered prayer turns Jonah into devotion. The prayer that is answered." The the salvation that has come, Jonah is now devoted to his God. And how can this not be the case for any of us, including Jonah? When God acts in miraculous ways, when he stirs us up, we are stirred then to devotion. See how Jonah was in verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. With a voice full of thanksgiving, Jonah devotes himself to God by sacrifice. Don't let this Old Testament language confuse you. Paul says it again in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So 
Paul affirms what Jonah experienced that when the Lord presents you with glorious truths and salvation that only he alone can give, the only proper response is worship and devotion. How could it not be? The God of heaven, the Lord of creation has acted. He acted supernaturally in Jonah's life, but he acts in every single way in our lives too. This is at the core of what Jonah is saying here. He is offering the sweet aroma of sacrifice to the God who delivered him. And he delivered because, verse 9 ends with, salvation belongs to the Lord. And look back into all of chapter 2 and really all of the book of Jonah and think about what Jonah is saying here. How deep and rich is this truth given his circumstances? What does salvation mean here to Jonah? Well, it's twofold, isn't it? It's the physical and the spiritual. He was physically saved from the sea. He was drawn out of the sea into the belly of a fish, and the physical salvation led to spiritual salvation. The reluctant running prophet has a change of heart inside the belly of a fish. What a wild place to be, but even more wild place to experience spiritual salvation. That salvation led to devotion and the giving of himself, as we will see in chapter 3, to the sacrifice of serving God once again as a prophet. And as chapter 2 closes out, we see that book ended uh, is the great fish. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. And ever so nonchalantly does Jonah express God's sovereignty over his creation. Just a word from the Lord to the fish is all that was needed to create Jonah landing on shore to check out from his three-night stay at Hotel Fish Guts. This is how the chapter ends. It's probably pretty gross. Just as it began, highlighting God's absolute sovereignty in creation and his steadfast love to pursue and change his prophet in the middle. So, what can we take away from Jonah chapter 2? How can we take what Jonah says to us and make it applicable to life? The book of Jonah is prophecy. What's unique about Jonah's prophecy is that he tells his message through his life. The majority of the rest of the minor prophets have a direct message to give to the people of Israel or to Judah or in Obadiah's case to Edom. In those prophecies, we we see phrases like, thus says the Lord. God is declaring through the mouthpiece of the prophet what he wants the people to know. It is direct. It's not always clear. Language and imagery can be tough, but we know it's direct. Prophets are known for being direct. Jonah's message is not direct. We do not see the content of his message that he is to bring. We never know specifically what Jonah says to the Ninevites. When we get to chapter 3 and he preaches to uh, the the whole town of, of Nineveh, we do not know what he says. We never see his words. We never see the word of the Lord that he received. But if you remember from Jonah 1, and we'll see in Jonah 3, that he, just, he received a word from the Lord. We just don't know what it is. But the point is this. Jonah is still a prophet. His book is prophetic, and it functions like a prophecy. But we get there not from a direct word from the Lord, but from the life of the prophet himself. We get this from his prayer here in chapter 2. So this prophet tries not to have a message from the Lord, but his actions and his life proclaim the truths of God in spite of himself. So the first point of application we can take away from this text is to cry out to the Lord in our times of distress. Don't wait. I said this earlier when we looked at verse 2, but Jonah cried out and God answered. We said before that Jonah didn't change any of his external actions first. He didn't earn God's deliverance or, or have an, he didn't earn an ear from the Lord. He knew that God was under no requirement to hear him. 
But God did anyway. Not because of Jonah's character, but because of God's character. So, what are you holding back from God today? Is your life overtaking you? Are you drowning in the sea of despair? Don't wait to be like Jonah. He went kicking and screaming to the bottom of a literal ocean. This is what I, that's what I took, this is what it took for him to experience God's mercy. Sorry. He was hard-headed, apparently. He didn't want to listen to God. He listened to himself. But the God of creation would not let it stand. Jonah is an example of trials being used by God to shape the man into who God wants him to be. God wasn't finished with Jonah. God was working on Jonah in his trials. So, whether your trials are self-inflicted or not, God is working all things out for your good and his glory. It says that in Romans 8, 28. Second, be devoted to God. Those who remember what God has done for them, when salvation comes from the Lord, there is only one response, and that is worship through devotion. A right understanding of God and reality related to him leads to love of the Father. This is Jonah's story. He didn't see anything in his life as chance. It wasn't chance in chapter 1 when the wind hit the sea. Jonah knew what it was. It wasn't God, it was God working. And the big fish, the one that God took the time to grow and keep alive and sustain it for years until he needed it to scoop up Jonah at just the right time, that wasn't chance to Jonah. And he didn't see it that way. He knew it. He knew that God's steadfast love was in pursuit of him eventually. He realized that in verse 6. Once he remembered what welled up in him in the heart of Jonah was a voice of thanksgiving and the paying of vows. Jonah is saying that there is a cost and that I am willing to give that cost to you, God, for what you have done for me. Salvation has truly come from the Lord because salvation only belongs to the Lord. Well, as we close, the whole message about Jonah is salvation. Chapter 1, it was the unlikely converts of the mariners. In chapter 3, it will be the unlikely converts in Nineveh themselves. But in chapter 2, it's Jonah. What about you? The message of Jonah also has a New Testament salvation purpose. Think of the people of Israel at the time of Jesus. They knew the story of Jonah. They knew it to be fantastical, mysterious, enchanting. Why would God keep Jonah in the belly of a fish? And why for three days? What does this mean? Does it mean anything? Well, to Jesus, it did. The author and perfecter of our faith knew the story of Jonah because he was on creation's throne at the right hand of the Father, co-orchestrating history and the events of the lives of everyone, including this prophet. So, when Jesus shows up over a thousand years later, he draws from Jonah 2 to give Israel a category for his death. We read from Matthew earlier, but let's look at Luke's telling of it in Luke 11. Luke eleven twenty nine through 32. We'll say this. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. 
The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So this just generation of Jews was seeking a sign. They wanted something. They said, what is the sign, Jesus? How can we know? He said, the only sign you will get from me is the sign of Jonah. We know that that sign of Jonah was three days and three nights in the tomb. So not only was the story of Jonah true, but it was meant to be a bright neon sign pointing to Christ. Christ looks to Israel and says, the story you know so well, the story of your Old Testament canon and prophet Jonah, it was a sign. So when I go into the grave for three days, I will come out and salvation will be from me. God the Father will accept my sacrifice and in three days I will rise and all who would believe in my work will be saved. So today, if the Holy Spirit is opening your eyes that salvation only belongs and comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, turn to Him. Trust in His message that His three days and nights in Sheol paid for the sins you have committed against a holy and just God. You see, God was under no obligation to save Jonah. And he's under no obligation to save us. But just as God's steadfast love pursued Jonah, Christ pursues us and grants us the free gift of eternal life found in his sacrifice alone. How can we not see the message of Jesus in the story of Jonah? God is unchanging. He is the one who created our faith. He gifts us our faith. And he is the God who sent Jesus to seek and save the lost. Turn to Christ today. Believe in him and you will be saved. Salvation truly belongs to Christ alone. Let's pray. (sighs) Heavenly Father, praise your great name that salvation comes from you alone. Thank you that you have revealed that to us through your word. Thank you that you showed us by the message of your Old Testament prophet that Christ Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the answer to the sign of what does it mean to be three nights in the belly of a fish. Thank you that he came out of the tomb three days later and you accepted his sacrifice, his death, and he rose from the grave, conquering it all and making payment for our sins, my sins, and anyone's sins in here today that has not yet put their trust in you and your son. Thank you, God, that you have orchestrated in our lives just as you have orchestrated in Jonah's, that you make all things come to pass and all things are for our good. And again, Lord, we ask that if if anyone here is hearing the story of Jonah for the first time or understanding what Christ has done for the first, open their eyes to the glorious truth that Christ Jesus is the fulfillment. Christ Jesus is the better Jonah. Christ Jesus is the fullness of salvation. He saves to the uttermost all who would call on his name. And now he sits at your right hand, interceding, praying for, and still seeking and saving the lost even today. Thank you that the message of Jonah is true and that your message of salvation is forever and for for a lifetime and for eternity. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.